Hi, my name is Anthony. I uh, help oversee the RC ministry here at North Mountain, and I'm so happy. Uh, happy Independence Day. Uh, happy Fourth of July. Um, please don't blow your fingers off today. There's always at least one person in this country. Don't let it be you. Um, I come from uh, Redemption Alhambra. I got some homies that are visiting today. Thank you for coming. Um, but now got, I moved north uh, with my wife and figured better do church in my neighborhood. So we joined this team and um, was so grateful to, to be here. But I got to be honest, this is my first time preaching in like two years. I feel, I think I'm going to be a little rusty. I mean, I, I'm going to let God do his thing. But I'm going to say this. I was born in Maryville. I've been at Alhambra. I was a deacon for many years. So what I think is going to happen is uh, the Alhambra flavor might come out from time to time. Listen, you guys cannot just be staring at me. I read somewhere that. So I looked up uh, one of my favorite preachers uh, had a list of, of things that preachers can kind of lean on to comfort them. And one of those things was if people are just staring at you blankly, it means that they're focused. I don't know if I fully believe that. I feel like you guys are checked out. You ha so if you want to say amen, you have to, say, especially because I'm feeling rusty, so I'm nervous about that. If you feel like the Spirit's putting the amen in you, don't stifle the Spirit's fire. Yeah. And, and besides that, I kind of got a gimpy leg. I hurt my leg a while back, so they're letting me use this stool. But I feel like the Spirit might, you know, you never, you never know. Hopefully I don't fall off the stage here. But again, my name's Anthony. I'm, I'm so glad uh, that you're here. Um, you guys uh, look so wonderful out there. Um, and uh, let, let me pray for you uh, before we dive into Nehemiah 6. God, I want your spirit to move through us today. We really want to learn from your word. We want to know the truth that it brings, and we want it to convict us. Would you change our hearts even in this moment, God? Would you show us what you want us to show us? Would you teach us what you want us to learn? And would you give us humble hearts so that we can accept these things, God? That we wouldn't shy away from hard truths. God, that we would look these things in the face because you've called us to. That we'd walk in line with your spirit. God, not just me as I, as I preach up here but for every person that's listening, God, that their ears would be open to your truth, that there would be no distractions, no attacks from the enemy, as we talk about attacks from the enemy. God, I want you to soften all of us and prepare us uh, for what you have for us today. God, we accept it, we love you, and we pray all of these things in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus. Amen. This world that we live in is immersed in darkness. Sin covers the face of it. It's embedded into the core of all things, of all things. Everywhere we look, there's pain. Everywhere we look, there's tears, hatred. I mean, I got my, my phone and, and I follow all kinds of people on social media, doctors and, and uh, athletes, and I'm sure you guys do the same, but I follow a lot of news outlets. I'm sure none of you guys do that. Um, and and th there's never a shortage of <clears throat> bad news. People hurt, people yelling and screaming at each other, people divided. So I was looking up some headlines because in Nehemiah chapter 6, it really dives into the darkness that we face as people of God. 
So I wanted to kind of get a, a, a better glimpse of the darkness. I mean, I can look at that in my own life, if I'm honest. Um, but I wanted to go through some headlines. And as I read through headlines, I started to feel a little depressed because uh, there was no end. And one thing I realized was that there is so much more pain that aren't on the headlines. There's so much more going on, so much more evil going on uh, that I'm not going to see on an app. I'm not going to see in the newspaper. I mean, you guys know that. Um, you guys aren't, aren't strangers to pain. We live in this world together. We know it's a reality. So I was going to list off a, a number of headlines to kind of give us a glimpse of the darkness to kind of prepare us for, for the chapter that we're going to dive into. But there was one headline that I don't know if it's because I'm a dad. I have five girls. If this, this story impacted me in a unique way, um, but I decided this was the only one. I felt like this, this one headline was enough darkness to give us uh, the image that we needed. So I'm just going to kind of read what I saw. This is here in Phoenix. On June 25th, teenage girl was killed by a stray bullet. She was 15 years old. I read the story. I looked into it when I saw that. And her dad and her little sister were in the room with her when she got struck. There was no malicious intent. Uh, it was just some idiot firing his gun down the, down the road. And one of those bullets, just it was a stray bullet, went up to her second-story bedroom and killed her, 15 years old. I think... I think the reason that that story hits so hard is because my oldest girl, she's only 10, five years away from, from 15, and, and this girl, Graciela, uh, she was just getting started in life. Um, and so when I read that, I thought, I mean, how, how can you read something like that and not know that this is not the way it's supposed to be? That we're fully immersed into the darkness and sin and hatred, and we know God, this is not what you wanted. This is not what you intended for us, for people, for creation. <sighs> the weird thing about the darkness is it's not this arbitrary thing, right? It feels like the darkness has teeth and that its aim is to devour and to hurt and to kill. And, and those of you who grew up in the church is because you know why. You know what I'm referring to. And the darkness does. The darkness is not unbiased and unprejudiced in any way. It does want to harm us. But there's good news. God sent his one and only son as a light, the only light into the deepest darkness. And not only that, but he created a people of light. That's us. We reflect the light of God. So what does that mean with the darkness? The darkness hates the light. Scripture says that it, that it hates the light, but it can't overcome the light. And so it rages against the light. And because we reflect the light, it rages against us. And that brings us to Nehemiah 6. It brings us to Nehemiah 6 because he reflected the light. He was a member of God's family. He wanted to be obedient. He had a vision, a call on his life, and he wanted to serve the Lord. 
And because of that, the darkness raged against him. That's what Nehemiah said. In fact, that's what all of Nehemiah really shows us, is that the darkness raged against him. And why? Because he reflected the light. That's what the people of God do. We reflect the light. And because we reflect the light, the darkness rages. I have a question. It's a rhetorical, please, please don't shout out an answer. Question. Is the aim of your life pointed at God? Or is your life pointing at something else? Remember that the people of God, the entire trajectory, the entire trajectory of God's people should be aimed at God to give him glory, to give him praise. And then we embody his spirit and express that through love towards other people. That is the mission of God's people. You have to understand that God wants his people to follow his will, to be on his mission. And make no mistake, God's people are on that mission. But are you? But am I? Nehemiah was. Nehemiah was a reflection. And because of that, he faced the raging darkness. Now, one thing about uh, the people we read about in Scripture is that they, they gen- generally know that they are just one pen stroke in the entire history, the entire narrative that God is telling from beginning to end. Even Nehemiah, even though his name is at the top of this page, he knows that, hey, I'm just this, this tiny little pen stroke in God's story. But Nehemiah wants to be faithful to that pen stroke, that, that vapor that is his life. He knows he's just one small link in the grand chain of all things. And he wants to honor God and he wants to reflect him in that way. So the, the part that he has to play, Josh has already taught. We've had, we had Seth here last week, did a great job from Gateway. Um, but, but basically, just kind of give a, a quick recap. Nehemiah, his small part to play, his little pen stroke in, in, in the story of God is to restore the walls of Jerusalem. That's his part to play. And that's his reflecting the light of God. And so because of that, the darkness rages against him. But Nehemiah doesn't want to just restore the walls because it's, a, it's like a beacon uh, of, and a reminder of the home that the Jews once had. He's not restoring the walls just for that reason. The biggest reason that he's trying to restore these walls is because it's a reminder of God's purpose for the Jewish people. And so when the, when the darkness rages against Nehemiah because this is his aim in life, it's not because he's just trying to build a place for the Jews to live, but because God has a mission for the Jews. And, and to restore the walls means that they're back on that mission even more so than they already are as captives in the Persian kingdom. So uh, just to kind of recap chapter 4, chapter 4 is when there's explicit attacks taking place. So that means that the people of God are being threatened by these bullies named Tobiah and Sambalat. Genesee read about them, uh, so we're going to talk more about them. But they were basically threatening the Jewish people. They're like, we can't let them restore the walls. We have to attack. We got to kill these fools uh, because they had power. They were governors. And one, anytime there's another rising power, it's like, okay, I got to share my power now. Don't want to do that. But also historically, whenever the Jews or the Israelites were in power, it never really boded too well with the surrounding nations if they were worshiping other gods, doing things that was antithetical 
to the way God commanded people to do things. And so they didn't want that. They knew that their people, uh, it might be a bad story if the Jews rise up to power because of this. So you guys got, you got these guys, Tobiah, Sambalah, Geshem, the Arab, and they're threatening. They're like, we're going to come down there. So Nehemiah, he's a gangster. That's one thing you should know. That's, a, that's, that's an unofficial point. Nehemiah is a thug. I'm telling you guys, he's a gangster. He's a gang. We're going to see more of his gangsterness. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. It is now. But he said, look, they're threatening our lives. You get a hammer in one hand, get a sword in another, keep working. You hear this beacon? I want everyone to rally, rally to this point and don't fight for yourselves. Fight for the man and the woman next to you. Fight for each other. And all the Jews were bucked up. You know, it was like 300. We got this. Chapter 5. So Nehemiah, he's helping to restore the walls. He's a governor. He's trying to figure this out. Then there's the attacks from, from outside, these external attacks, these external threats. So he's trying to navigate that. He's got to play some political games too. So he's figuring, he's, he's working in all these tensions. But then he's like, okay, let me look in the household. Let's look at the Jewish people. What's going on here? And he recognizes that there's injustices and mistreatment taking place between the Jewish nobles and their own people. And he blasts them. I mean, have you ever been, they were quiet, by the way. Have you ever been blasted so hard by somebody that you were just, because uh, 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 you knew they're, speak, they're speaking the truth. They got me. They got me. And that's what Nehemiah did. He blasted them so hard that they were silent because they recognized what he was saying was true. They were mistreating their own brothers and sisters. So he called them out. He had to do some house cleaning. And now here we are. Chapter 6, oh, beep, beep, chapter 6. Now the opposition, the darkness that rages against the light is focused on just him now. So let me give you a, a little backdrop uh, to the story before we start reading. We're going to go verse by verse, which is one of my favorite things about redemption. We like to go book by book, verse by verse, typically. So you got these three stooges, Tobiah, Sambala, and Geshem, the Arab, and they had been, like we talked about in chapter 4, they had been threatening physically. We're going we're gonna to murder these Jewish people. We don't want them to restore the walls. But then they say, okay, guys, this is not working. They got swords in one hand, hammers in the other. These guys are not, we don't want to mess with them like that. Let's take a more diplomatic approach. And so what they do is they slide into Nehemiah's DMs, not in the romantic way. They start talking crazy and they want to meet up with them. So that's where we're at. Verse 1, so if you still have your Bible open, let me read it. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshe the Arab, Stooge 1, 2, and 3, and the rest of our enemies heard that I'd built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together at Hekfirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. So translation, Nehemiah, look, we know you rep Phoenix. We're over here in Gilbert. We got to figure this thing out. How about we meet up in Tempe? That's kind of neutral ground, right? It doesn't say that explicitly in the text, but it's implied that they wanted to come up to some kind of amicable solution, something that works out well for everyone, even though... Nehemiah discerned that they really wanted to cause him harm. So here's my point. Point number one should pop up. If you're taking notes, this is a good time. 
The enemy will attempt to lure you away from God's mission by promising peace. So let's take the millennial generation, cut that in half. There's an older part of the millennials, which I fall into, and any generation older than that. I want you to read peace as comfort. A home, a steady job, security, a family, you know, the American dream. These are things that, that I kind of lean towards and people older than me to our generation. If you're in the younger crowd, so half the younger part of the millennial and, and lower, read peace as fulfillment, experiences, friends, traveling, living life to the fullest. Um, you know, there's a big FOMO, fear of missing out. Like, I don't want to miss out on anything. I want to live my life, live out my dreams. Now, let me clarify. Some of you are like, well, what's he trying to say? I am not saying that any of these things are bad or evil or wrong in and of themselves. But if the people, of, if the trajectory of the people of God is aimed at him and we're reflecting the light, if these things pull us away from that aim, then they become an idol. They become a false god. And that's what the enemy wants to do, pull us away uh, with those things, with, with, that, with those temptations. Now, think about just, just kind of a brief uh, off-road, and we'll get back on. Think about what would have happened if Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to the king in Persia, got this vision, this gravitational pull of God that was saying, you got to go and restore these walls. He, he hears that. What would have happened had he, had he ignored that and said, you know what, I got a good in Persia. I got a stable job, cut bare to the king. Can't get much better than that for a Jew. I have a, I can travel kind of when I want, you know, I can, uh, I got a home, I can build a family here, I can do all these things. Imagine what would have happened, how the story would have been different. God would have had to get himself a new gangster to, to carry out the mission. And Nehemiah would have been lost in the sands of time. Not to say that we should do things so that our name could be glorified, but how much different the story would have been. And the reason I'm, I'm even asking that or pointing that out is because I think a lot of us who know Jesus will fill that pool and say, I, I'm not quite living the way I should be. My life is not aimed at him. I need to get back on track. But then we kind of push that voice back down and say, I got bills to pay, though. Oh, my friend just called me. They, they want me to go hang out. And so Maybe I'll just do that, and then before you know it, tomorrow I'll do the same thing. Day after that, and before you know it, 5, 10, 15, your whole life passes. And this is what you've been doing. This is what I've been doing. So like I said, my temptation and leaning is definitely towards the American dream, that, that older temptation, the older generation temptation. Me and my wife, we just bought a home that we love very much. Oh, Dominique's here. Oh, Alhambra represent. Oh, Danjanga, Nicole, I got the crew here. Sorry. Man, I'm, I'm so glad to see you guys. Anyways, where am I at? American dream. No, no. Um, so my leaning is towards that. Got a, got a beautiful home, beautiful wife, uh, five wonderful daughters. Uh, we even got ourselves a Siberian husky pup uh, who's, a, who's a wild one. And the only thing I'm missing is a white picket fence. That's all I'm missing, and I am sad. I got a, I got a career. It's a, it's a tough job. It's a tough job for sure. It keeps me busy. But it's, a, it's stable, you know. And that's my leaning. And I have to fight. I, have, I, I was talking to my wife about this. I look at our lives and say, man, how much time have I given over to just enjoying these things, which isn't all, again, it's not always bad. 
but how much has it pulled me from the mission of God? I can't tell you how often, even here, getting ready for church, every Sunday, every single Sunday, I'm going to be transparent, every single Sunday is a battle to come to church. And that's only, coming to church is only the one half step to being on the mission of God. It's just barely kind of getting there, scratching the surface. And that is so hard because I love my bed and I love my home. And I got my kids and we're chilling, watching some cartoons, hanging out. God, it's hard. But the enemy is going to say, hey, instead of restoring the walls, whatever that might be for us, why don't you come talk to us and uh, maybe there's, maybe we can talk about peace. And before you know it, a whole, I mean, imagine how many people, how many generations of people got tempted by this promise from the enemy and got lured away. And so they didn't walk in line with the mission of God. And let me clarify, I'm not talking individually. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty. We have to look at these things in a communal context as a family. Right now we're at Redemption North Mountain. Redemption has a, a certain aim, and we're trying to aim towards Jesus. So when I talk about falling off of that mission, I'm not saying you have to find your individual destinies and, and mission that God wants you to be on. No, but here as a community, what does that look like, and are you on it. See, the enemy doesn't mind if you check off all the church boxes. He doesn't mind if you do church every week. Trust me, I know. He doesn't mind if you do Bible study or RC groups every week. Even me, I, I help oversee uh, the RCs with, with Andrew here. He doesn't mind even me leading that. As long as my faith has become tamed and ineffective. So my question is, has your faith become tamed and ineffective? How do you even know? You look at the fruit. You look at the fruit of your life. Faith should be burning hot. John Piper likes to say, white hot. I love that. I love the idea that our faith that drives us to love Jesus and love others should be burning hot. Is it burning hot? See, God hasn't called us to a life of comfort as much as we enjoy it. And man, I enjoy it. Man, I enjoy it. He hasn't called us to that life. He's called us to the cross. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. And I can tell you this, there's only one place you can go if you have a cross on your shoulder. All right, back to Nehemiah. I'm getting, I'm going to start preaching in here, you know what I mean? <laughs> Even though I'm sitting. Verse 3. Where are we at? And I sent messages. So this is his response. They, they're inviting him out. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Translation, Nehemiah says, listen, I am busy doing grown people work here. I'm doing something. Not something, but something. Do you understand? You want me to stop? What God has called me to do so that I can come talk about peace with you, but he already discerned they meant to do him harm. He had to tell him not once, not twice, not thrice, but four times he had to say no to their invitations. Here's the point. Faithfulness is often a war of attrition. So if you don't know what attrition is, I think, you know, I'm a big fan of, of all things World War II, movies, 
history. I'm kind of a, I think, I think maybe all guys kind of get to that point. But one thing I know, there's, so there's something called the Battle of the Bulge. I don't know all the details, but I know that the Germans were no joke. What they tried to do was they always tried to win battles through attrition. So they would have all these bombs and supplies and air and all these things. And they were always trying to attack the Allies, even at the worst possible times, times that they would least expect it, like Christmas and, and holidays and, you know, maybe they call peace, but then they would break that. They were always trying to break down the Allied forces so that the Allied forces would either, one, run out of supplies just trying to defend, just trying to survive, or two, it's like, I can't even get any sleep. I'm exhausted. I'm freezing. I I don't even, here, I'm going to wave my white flag. I give up. You guys win. That, that's what attrition is. The enemy tries to attack us in this same way, and faithfulness is a war of that. So let me make it clear, and don't be discouraged by this. I'll tell you why in a second. The enemy is going to attack you, not might, but the enemy is going to attack you if you reflect the light over and over and over and over again. But we have Nehemiah's example to simply remain faithful. Now, again, I know it's discouraging. It's like, man, I want to give in. I don't want to be attacked. Oh, I don't want that to be my life. One thing, going back to community, you cannot do it alone. Don't even try. There's no Lone Ranger Christianity. Don't even try. You're going to fail. The enemy's going to, that's what the enemy wants is to pull you away. That was point one. Pull you away from home. Pull you away from community. That's what the enemy wants. Don't try that. So one, you have to be in community. And with community, you are strengthened. So when you have tears coming down your face, you have brothers and sisters that can surround you and lift you up. And two, even though it can be discouraging to hear that, man, I'm going to be attacked over and over and over again. Remember that God fights with you and God fights for you. The darkness raged against Nehemiah, but he remained faithful. Tactic switch. The enemy's like, okay, this is, this is not work, working. So they went from hitting up uh, Nehemiah privately. They were in the DMs, right, just private correspondence over and over and over. Nehemiah said, nope, 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 nope. And then they shot him a public tweet. I don't know if you're on Twitter. Every time I'm on Twitter, I feel like I'm holding my breath because it's like poison air. I'm like, oh, my God, and Twitter's so bad. Every now and then there's like a, a nice article, even people who I think are meaning well. It's just like, God, this place. And it just shows you a reflection of the human heart, just people trying to talk at each other and over each other. Sometimes there's gems, but you got, you got to search a little bit for them. But so they're, they're sending him private correspondence. They're in the DMs, and they're like, hey, this isn't working. Tactics switch. Let me send him a tweet. Not only that, but let's add a few people to the tweet. So they were like, let me add uh, President Biden here. Shoot, I'll even add Trump. I'll, uh, what, what's the official Twitter account for the People's Republic of China? Let's put that on there, too. They start throwing. They're like, hey, look, it's an open letter. Let's just put everyone on there. So let's see. Verse 5. Verse 5. In the same way, Sambala, this dude, Sambala, right, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. 
And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Translation, Nehemiah, we know you're out there making big plays. In fact, what we heard was that you're trying to become king. You want to rebel against the king of Persia, and you want to set yourself up as king. You have all these prophets saying so. And then they go, you sure you don't want to meet up? You sure you don't want to grab that coffee, try to figure it out? I, listen, Nehemiah, I know it. My boy Geshem knows it. The nations know it. Pretty soon the king of Persia is going to know it. Rhetorical. Why do you think they would go from the DMs to a public tweet? What could be their aim? Think about it. Think about how the, the, your average Jew must have felt. I mean, this is an open letter. Most people who would see it were more like nobles, but you know how gossip works. It's going to get to a bunch of ears, not just who it's intended to get to. So I, I kind of picture like your average Jewish person, right? Like the dad from the 50s, like a 50s sitcom, just smoking his pipe, reading his newspaper, got his family there. They're eating some pancakes or something. And then the father sits up and says, what is Nehemiah trying to do here? He's trying to rebel against the king. Is that what we're doing is we're trying to rebel and make Nehemiah king? Is that is that this is the guy I voted for, and this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to put us in, in harm's way here. Here's the point. The enemy wants you to be afraid, but God doesn't. They are trying to make Nehemiah scared. They're trying to provoke fear in his heart and in his mind so that he stops working on the wall. They don't want him to reflect the light. Remember, the darkness hates the light. It rages against the light, and he is reflecting the light by being obedient to his mission to restore the walls of Jerusalem. They want him afraid. Listen to me. The enemy wants you to be afraid, but God does not. God doesn't want you to be afraid. And here's why I'm making, uh, emphasizing this point so much. If you're like me, you're on, most of you, I'm, I'm, I know I met somebody who doesn't have social media. God bless you. God bless you. But I know a lot of us are. It is nonstop division and hatred and fear. People are always saying, well, if this person gets elected, then this. If this person does this, then what's going to If If this law gets passed, if this country military does, it's just nonstop fear. Think about the things that we're just constantly consuming, just pouring into our eyes and ears, nonstop, just fear, fear, fear. And why? What does fear do but control? The enemy wants us to be afraid so he can control us. That's exactly what they were doing to Nehemiah. They wanted to control his actions by making him afraid. Get this, though. I looked this up, so it's real. The word fear not, or the phrase fear not, or do not be afraid some way, shape, or form, is in Scripture 365 times. That's one for every day of the year. God doesn't want us to be afraid. I cannot emphasize that enough. God does not want us to be afraid. I could talk about that all day, but I won't. Verse 8. Then, so Nehemiah's responding, I sent to him saying, no such thing as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. So Nehemiah uh, basically says that you're lying. This isn't true. You're making it up. Like I said, I'm busy doing something. 
and you're not. Let me, let me focus on this. And then he prayed. Some commentaries think that he wasn't quite praying. He wasn't saying like, oh, God, strengthen me, but that the translation's a little murky. And it's actually basically what happened is that Nehemiah's resolve to work on the wall became stronger. So as they're lobbing their attacks at him, they're throwing their arrows at him, trying to figure out a way for him to stop the work, get off mission, stop reflecting the light, Nehemiah was like, no, I'm focused now. Your attacks are only making me more resolved to stay on mission. Fun little story. So been married 10 years, uh, but um, yeah, 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 a little over 10, 10 years. And uh, so when, I, when we were just dating, and she was my girlfriend, I won't give you all the details, but I was between jobs. Uh, I was definitely the dumbest 24, 23-year-old you've ever met. I think it was 24, 24-year-old you've ever met. I made every, every bad decision you can make in your 20s. I'm pretty sure I made it twice. Um, just unwise. So th- this is just another story of my lack of wisdom. So here's what I was. I was madly in love, head over heels in love like I am to this very day. And I knew I wanted to marry my girlfriend at the time. But like I said, I was between jobs. I was broke. I didn't have a lot of money. So I found this job at a group home. And it was a weekend, Friday through Sunday. And I, you had to live there so you couldn't leave. And I can, I've, I've even went, done construction jobs with friends, with my dad. But this job at, at this group home, this specific, because I worked at other group homes, which is fine. But this group home was different easily the hardest job I've ever done. So after the Sunday, I called them. I was like, look, this is just not for me. And they said, okay, come pick up your check. Uh, We'll part ways. So I go to pick up my check expecting it's only going to be like maybe a couple hundred bucks. But the hours did add. Obviously, it was a whole weekend, Friday through Sunday. So it was a lot of hours in just a short time. So the check was a lot higher than I thought it was going to be. So in my lack of wisdom, instead of saying, okay, this is a start of many checks that I should be saving to buy a decent ring and propose and maybe stabilize my life in some way. I thought, I'm going to find a ring right now and buy whatever I can afford with this, with this check. And so um, I, I get online. There's no smartphones. The internet's not quite what it was uh, over 10 years ago. And so I get on Craigslist, if you remember that, Craigslist Phoenix, and I start looking for a ring that I didn't want to buy like, you know, and I should have but I didn't want to buy a ring that was like maybe a hundred bucks and then just over time upgrade. I thought I'm going to get the most I can get out of this paycheck. Spend all my money on it. Why not? I'm in love. Who cares? So I find this ring. It's in Sierra Vista, which is pretty much on the border between Arizona and Mexico. And I had this plan. Okay. Me and Ashley, my wife, we're hanging out every single day. So I thought, okay, I have to be able to go get it, come back without her having any suspicions because she wants to hang out, which she will. I can't be, I have to be here. So I thought, okay, she's going to go to work. She's going to be gone for eight hours plus transit to and from work. So my plan was once she went to work, I was going to go and I was going to drive up there. It's about a three-hour drive, at least according to MapQuest at the time. So, and, and I had to print, on my, I mean, my, my, I didn't have GPS, so I had a bunch of papers like this from MapQuest printed out all flying around in my car. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go get this girl a ring. And so, uh, and just to give you kind of uh, a little backdrop on my finances, basically I had enough to buy the ring and about two full tanks of gas, maybe just a little bit more than that. I mean, really teetering on the margins here. And so I stop, I think I'm at the edge of, of Gilbert, maybe, um, and I fill up my tank. So I have now one 
full tank of gas plus the ring, and I start driving. But my back driver's side tire has ballooned up just a little bit, and it's wobbling like this. So this three-hour trip, and just in, to give me more glimpse of my foolishness, not once did I say, hey, maybe if my tire's about to blow up, I should stop and come up with a new plan. I was like, I'm going to keep going, driving through the desert. And my three-hour trip turned into about five hours because I was driving really slow. And th these drivers were, like, zooming past me. Then when hit their brakes hard, kind of slow down to where I'm at. And they're looking at me, like, going like this and pointing to my tire. I'm like, I know. I'm in love. I'm in love. Just go. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about me. Worry about you. I'm buying this ring. Five hours later, I'm in Sierra Vista. And I'm like, okay, get the tire, tank of gas, ring. Let's get the ring, okay? So I got the ring, and now I have just enough money for a tank of gas. Maybe, again, a little bit over that amount. So I'm like, okay, tank of gas or tire. I know I can't make that trip back. The tire's pretty much done. And I don't really know. I can't remember what happened with the spare, but I knew that was kind of like not a factor in this situation. Maybe it wasn't there. Again, more foolishness. But I find a tire shop, and I go give this guy the sob story. I tell him I'm in love. I'm young. I'm in love got to help me and he did graciously he was like look I got it that's a used tire it'll work um, but I'll bring I'll bring give you a discount and so he did and not only that but I had about I don't know like 10 bucks left maybe a little bit less than 10 bucks so I'm like man my man so he gave me a tire I went to the closest gas station put that the last little bit that I had in the, in the tank I was like all right back to Phoenix so I start driving it's getting dark uh, I don't have to go slow anymore thankfully um, and I see the lights. I'm pretty sure it's like Mesa or Gilbert. I'm kind of on the edge. I'm still in the desert. But my tank is now, it's like, you know, when it gets to that line, and it's like, oh, you know, here's the line, the table, and it's like getting there. And so my heart's beating a little bit. Not because I'm in love, but that too. But it's like, oh, I'm like, oh, am I going to make I see the lights, but I'm still kind of a ways out. So I call up a friend. I'm calling up friends. Nobody can really come. And all my friends are in like Maryville and further west. I'm like, please come help me fill my tank. I made a I made a good decision mixed with a bad decision, and so I need you to come bail me. And sure enough, I found a friend who, thankful, I barely made it into the city, you know, not the city limits, but like where there's civilization, where there's actually street lights and whatnot. So I make it in, my friend comes, they fill up my tank, and I make it, make it home. And so here's one thing I'll say. The reason I told the story is because not once in this, all these crazy things that I was experiencing, not once was I like, hey, man, maybe, I sh maybe this isn't the best decision. Maybe this is a sign from God. Maybe I should stop. Nothing. I was in love. And, in fact, every single time something bad happened, I was like, get behind me, Satan. I'm going to do this thing. I was resolved to get this ring for my girlfriend. And, thankfully, 10 years later, I, I made somewhat, somewhat of a good decision. Not the ring, not the wife. Just clarity there. Back to Nehemiah. Back to Nehemiah. When Nehemiah was attacked, when the darkness raged against him, his resolve became crystallized. Does your resolve become crystallized when you're attacked? Or do you feel like maybe this whole God, Jesus thing ain't, ain't really it? I'm, I don't know if this is what I signed up for. And I understand that. I'm not trying to dog on you. I get it. It is a hard thing to choose a life that opposes the darkness. The darkness is bad enough anyways. It still wants to kill you regardless. But when you're opposing it head on because you reflect the light of God, it's hard to crystallize your resolve to stay on mission. The enemy changes up tactics again. Another tactic switch. So they're like, okay, 
He won't trust us. We don't really understand why he doesn't trust us, but he doesn't. Maybe a friend is somebody he'll listen to or what I interpret as a friend. So let's go to verse, verse 10. All right. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Here's the context. Shemaiah is a Jew. He's a prophet. I think he's, he's one of the boys. And because Nehemiah visited him, again, it doesn't, I want to be transparent, it doesn't say this explicitly in the text, but I think there's a relationship there between Nehemiah and Shemaiah. He's at his house. I think they're maybe just acquainted. Maybe there's just kind of a mutual respect there. He's a prophet. He, uh, Nehemiah's a governor. But I, you know, I kind of read it as that he knows this guy and maybe they're friends. Okay, let's see what Nehemiah, so he just told Nehemiah, someone is coming to kill you. Let's go hide in the temple. Let's read verse 11 to see Nehemiah's response. But I said, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I can go into the temple and live, I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalah had hired him. Dang, for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalah, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. He said, Shemai, I'm not a coward. I just told the people, carry a, a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other and get ready to fight. And now that the attacks are focused on me, you want me to go run and hide in the temple? What kind of man does that, Shemaiah? Got any uh, Godfather fans in the house? By show of hands? Ah, okay. My mom's a huge fan. Um, I, I, I like them. They, a good story. They're a little bit long and, uh, you know, a little bit slower from, from my style. But um, there's definitely amazing scenes, iconic scenes. And my favorite scene in all the Godfathers is in part two. So the main character, Michael Corleone, he's running the, the Corleone uh, crime family. He finds, he, well, there's an assassination attempt on him, and he finds out that his older brother, Fredo, was involved with that conspiracy to kill him. So him and Fredo and a, a bunch of others, or I don't, I don't remember exactly if it was like a gala or an event, a wedding or something, something was happening, some kind of party. And you see Fredo and Michael, and they're looking, and Fredo's smiling, you know, that's his brother thinks he's getting away with it, even though the, the assassination attempt was unsuccessful. I might be butchering the story, by the way. This is what I remember. But Michael sees his brother Fredo, and he knows at this time that, that Fredo was involved with that, with that attempt. And there's just, just this scene that just like, oh, it's, it's such a good scene. But Michael walks up to Fredo and grabs him by the face. He's holding him, and he kisses his brother. And he says, I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke my heart. And Fredo, you see the blood just drain from Fredo's face, and he, he runs off. I feel like this is that scene for Nehemiah and Shemaiah, because he discerns that Shemaiah has been bought. He's a mark. He's a mole for the enemy. He's trying to tempt Nehemiah to be even more afraid, just like they were already trying to do. And he, I picture him just grabbing Shemaiah's face, and not you too. They got you. 
You're one of the boys. What are you doing? I imagine. In fact, we kind of get a glimpse of Nehemiah's frustration because he prays right after that. He doesn't even name Shemaiah. He knows who's behind it, Tobiah and Sambalah. And basically the translation is God. Take out a pen and paper and write these names down. Don't forget them. Woo-hoo. You ever been so mad that you're like, God, please write this person's name down. <laughs> write this name down. That's where Nehemiah was at. I mean, you got to keep in mind, he's been attacked nonstop. And he's still trying to restore the wall, which is no easy feat in and of itself. Now his boy Shemaiah. So here's my point. I'm going to bring a little Alhambra to this point. It really do be your own people sometimes. It really do be your own people sometimes. What that means is that when, when our aim and mission is focused on God, giving him praise, declaring his glory, being on mission, we reflect the light and the darkness rages against us. There's going to be a lot of people, maybe by habit, maybe they just grew up in the church, this is all they really know, but who call or at least say they call on the name of Jesus, but they don't really love him and they're not really on mission. People that might be in this room now, people that will say, God wants you to do what? God is calling us here at North Mountain to do, man, that's too much sacrifice. That, I mean, and they'll use, you know, there's certain buzzwords they might use not even realizing, but they're playing a Shemaya. You can't, God wouldn't really want you to do that. That's not healthy for you. Why would he want you to do that in light of your history and in light of your experience? God demands our all. And we have to understand that the darkness rages against us. And that can mean many, many attacks through the course of our life. So people will use all kinds of things. And I'm talking about specific people in the church. They'll put a voice in your ear a lot of times not even realizing that they're speaking on behalf of the enemy. But they're going to try to get you to be scared. They're going to try to get you to hide. They're going to try to get you to be disobedient, internally facing, and ultimately outside of the will of God. If you are going to reflect light, if you're going to be on mission for God, you have to get prepared. I have a list here. These are the things you can expect from people you know, you trust, you admire, you love. You can expect to be lied to. Misunderstood is a big one. Lonely, told you are wasting your life, betrayed, ignored, when you're on the mission of God reflecting the light, people who live in the darkness, even if they say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but there's no fruit, they won't understand. They're not going to get it. And they're going to try to convince you that none of this makes sense. Why are you doing so much? It's something we have to be prepared for. But good news, here we are. Verse 15, the wall is finished. Boom. So the wall was finished, verse 15, on the 25th day of the month Elul, Genesis, is that right? Elul? Why would they even make that word, two L's like that? In 52 days, record time, by the way. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that, that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God with the help of our God. So Nehemiah and the Jews are ecstatic. The work is done. The, the walls are restored. That little pen stroke in history, that little part that Nehemiah has to play, it's done. The wall's finished. And get this, the enemy gives God credit. 
They say there's no way that could have happened unless God was in it. There's no way. Point. Our work for God should result in God getting the credit. Listen to me. Listen to me. Nehemiah and the Jews were working, but it was God who did the work. Okay. I'm about to preach then. Nehemiah and the Jews were carrying swords and hammers, but it was God who defended them. Nehemiah was the one who prayed, but it was God who answered. He got the credit. He was with them. Even the enemies of God recognized this truth. They said that work couldn't have happened unless God was in it, unless God was with you guys. Their own enemies, the people who had been attacking them this entire time. Our work here at North Mountain should be so in line with the mission of God that people say, not, man, you guys are really kicking butt over there. Hey, kudos to you. It should be, there's no way, there's no way that these things could have happened in this neighborhood, in this way, unless God was with you. Unless God was with you. Man, I pray for this. I pray for this. And I'm so thankful for the people that have been serving here because not once have I gotten that, you know, you get that aroma of somebody who's like, you can tell they're kind of in it for themselves. By the grace of God, I haven't seen that here, but it doesn't mean that, that that won't come into play. Eventually, we're all human beings. But I pray and ask God, please do a work, a work that, only, that can only happen by your hand. Let us be so trusting of you and take that step of faith. Now we're about to wrap up. This story ends so weird. This chapter ends so weird. If I was Nehemiah, I would stop here. I mean, his aim was to restore the walls. He's getting attacked. He's avoiding the attacks. You know, he's discerning. He's, he's using wisdom. He's making good choices. And then the walls are done. But then to cap it all off, even the enemy is like, man, God had to be with you in order for those walls to be restored. For me, that's the end story. I'm out. Read it. Give God praise. Uh, let's go get some, uh, get some lunch. But it didn't, not only did the book of Nehemiah not stop there, the chapter doesn't even stop there. So let's read it. The, the wall is fully built. The work is done. But the attacks keep coming. Let me switch here. All right, verse 17. This is it, the last, last part. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. Hmm. It's kind of weird. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him. So the Jews are bound by oath to Tobiah, this guy who's been attacking them. Bless you. Because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehonanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Just like, hey, we got some family connections. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Talk about salt to the wound. They're in front of Nehemiah, who's been getting attacked. Even the Jews been threatening. They're like, hey, Tobiah ain't so bad. Look at all these things he's done. And they take whatever Nehemiah says, they're taking those words back to Tobiah. And it ends with this. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Here's my last point. The enemy will never stop attacking. So we must never stop being faithful. Let me say it again. The enemy will never stop attacking. So we must never stop being faithful. Listen, the darkness rages. It didn't just rage against Nehemiah. It rages against anyone who reflects the light, and it rages against 
the light itself. Because the darkness rages, little girls are killed by stray bullets. Because the darkness rages, homes are full of abuse and torment. Because the darkness rages, children are kidnapped or worse. Because the darkness rages, the enemy manages to convince God's people that there's always time to get on mission later. There's always some other time to do it. Get your experiences in now. Get your stability and your comfort in now while you can. Otherwise, you're going to miss out. The darkness rages for these reasons. Up until our dying breath, the enemy will rage against us if we reflect the light of God. You have to see this. You have to know it. It's not going to stop. But but by the faithfulness of God who keeps us, we would not fall off his mission and his will. And man, I pray for this more than anything else for myself. God, keep me. I know I'm always one bad decision from shipwrecking my entire life, from crashing my life into the rocks. I know it. I'm imperfect. I know you're all in it with me. So I implore you, I beg you, don't shipwreck your life. Don't crash it into the rocks because the enemy is promising you peace and comfort and experience and fulfillment. Don't fall for it. Don't shipwreck your life. God is calling us now to do the greatest thing any person can ever be involved with, which is reflect him, which is to give him glory and praise and to embody his spirit and in thankfulness and love, give that love towards other people. There's nothing better. The enemy's trying to tell you to do otherwise, trying to convince you otherwise. It is a lie. Don't shipwreck your life, but remain faithful to Christ who's given us his very life. And let me be clear, when I say remain faithful, don't feel like, God, do I, what do I have to earn here? You're not earning your salvation. By the grace of God, we've been given it. But in that, in that truth that God has done this great work for us, that we would remain faithful to it. That as his son, as his daughter, we would say, God, you have sacri- you've given us everything, and now you call us to give everything of ourselves out of that love that you put inside of us. So keep pressing forward, remain faithful, and finish your race well, so that one day, when we see Jesus face to face, because we're going to see him face to face, he's going to look at us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. Let's pray. God, I am, I'm so I'm so honored that you would even meet with us. You are a holy God, and we recognize that we don't understand all your ways. We can only see such a a small fraction of the mission that you've called us to. But you invite us into this life nonetheless. And you say, hey, reflect me. Reflect me and remain faithful to it. Despite all the attacks that are coming, God will keep us. Thank you for that. Thank you for doing that, God. Thank you for working in our lives. Thank you for giving us a calling so that we don't wander aimlessly trying to achieve happiness by some glittery fashion of the week type situation that we wouldn't be distracted by that. Thank you, God, that you would keep us. Thank you for the sacrifices you've made. Thank you for being here this morning. God, we love you. Amen.